This is Dr. Peniel Joseph. I am the founding director of the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy at the LBJ School of Public Affairs, where I'm the Barbara Jordan Chair in Political Values and Ethics, and I am professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin, and welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection of race, democracy, social justice, politics, culture, society, and moral and ethical and political values in our time. This is the first podcast for Race and Democracy, and we are pleased to join with us uh, uh, my friend, (laughs) uh, Dr. Leonard Moore, who's the Vice President and Executive Director of the Division for Diversity and Community Engagement at the University of Texas at Austin, and also the George Littlefield Professor of History at the University of Texas at Austin in the Department of History, and a specialist on social movements, black power, black politics, uh, intellectual, social, social, cultural, and political history. And for our first um, podcast, uh, this is October 31st. It's Halloween 2018. And we are a week away, uh, less than a week away, from a really pivotal midterm election, perhaps the most important election that we've all faced in the last half century. And I really want to ask you, um, Leonard, about race and democracy and really morality um, in our current political culture. Uh, there was a synagogue massacre, an attack that killed 11 members of a synagogue in Pittsburgh. Uh, there's been other violence that has happened over the course of the last almost two years of this current presidential administration. And I want you to just talk about what do you think is going on in America? Are we unmoored from our values? What role is race playing in uh, this transformation that's occurred in our democracy. Thanks, Pinel. Thanks for having me. And, you know, brother, I've always appreciated your work uh, in the classroom, your scholarship, and and even at a deeper level, man, just your engagement with students, trying to get students into, uh, you know, into, you know, trying to get students active, trying to get students engaged intellectually through some of your programs. So thank you. And you've made quite an impact here uh, at UT Austin in your short time being here. Uh, let me say, in, in the aftermath of the Pittsburgh shooting, um, I was sort of... Uh, Taken back to my childhood. I'm from Cleveland Heights, Ohio. It is a very unique working class suburb on the east side of Cleveland, an inner ring suburb. The suburb when I grew up was about 40% African-American, about 30, 35% Orthodox Jewish, and about 15, 20% white. And if you came out of my parents' front door within a two-mile walk, Peniel, there would be seven Jewish synagogues, a, a large Jewish community Jewish uh, community center where we would sneak in and play basketball, um, a vibrant Jewish business district, um, three Jewish funeral homes. And so we were surrounded with this vibrant culture. And I remember we were probably the only black kids in Cleveland who understood what Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur were because we got out for those holidays. But, you know, growing up in that neighborhood, I think one what happened in Pittsburgh is what Orthodox Jews in many ways have always feared particularly in the aftermath of the Holocaust. I remember a lot of my uh, school-age friends, they go to public school Monday through Friday, but on the weekend, you know, they would go to Hebrew school, you know, to, to, to learn about Jewish life, history, and culture. So, and when you talk about, and particularly black folks, just the relationship, the historical relationship between African-Americans and Jews, particularly in terms of housing patterns, how since they faced housing discrimination, they understood what it was like and how, particularly in the Northeast and the Midwest, a lot of uh, Jewish neighborhoods became African-American neighborhoods. So I think, you know, it kind of resonates with me. 
But I think what we saw in Pittsburgh, sadly, I can say that I'm not shocked at all. You know, what we saw in Charleston uh, several years ago, and even at a deeper level, you know, what we saw in Kentucky just a couple days before the the Pittsburgh shooting, where, you know, two African-Americans were killed in a, in a shopping center parking lot. And, and when you say you're not shocked at all, and you brought up the 2015 um, July massacre of nine uh, black parishioners uh, uh, in, in, in South Carolina, um, and Reverend Clemente Pinckney and... Uh, was one of those murdered, and President Obama gave a stirring eulogy, basically asking the nation, who we, who are we? Um, he critiqued Confederate flags and the symbolism of Confederate flags. He traced that back to racial slavery. Um, I'm going to ask you that question, too. Who are we in the aftermath of not only just this Pittsburgh synagogue massacre, but we now have the president saying that he can repeal the 14th Amendment, and we have a president who's saying that he can repeal the 14th Amendment, the notion of, of natural-born uh, citizenship. And we have other Republicans saying that we shouldn't have some Haitians who get off the boat and have babies here be American-born citizens. Who are we? Uh, we're a country who we've lost our moral compass. There's a scripture in the Old Testament that talked about how, you know, people stopped in many ways having reverence to God and they did what was right in their own eyes. And I think we as a country, we have no moral compass whatsoever. And this is sad because a, a country that professes uh, some faith, a lot of, you know, professes to be a Christian nation. And if you look at script, there's a, there's, a, there's a chapter in Amos that talks about let justice roll down like rivers. And the prophet Amos is talking about, you know, what happens when people start disregarding God, and they have no regard for the poor whatsoever. And Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. loved that quote, mm -hmm. oftentimes talked about justice rolling down like a mighty, mighty stream. Yeah. Um, and, and when we think about the civil rights movement, especially the modern civil rights movement, that heroic period really called upon the nation to have a moral compass, and it linked that moral compass with racial justice. So I, I want us to talk about, I want you to talk about this coming election, this coming Tuesday, um, this presidency, we're seeing these racial massacres, but we're also seeing just a climate of racial hatred that I truly have not seen in my lifetime. Um, what can we do about this? What, what, how can we have um, impact um, to try to transform what we're seeing, especially we're here on a college campus, one of the most vibrant uh, campuses in the country. It's a public university, but we're also in the state of Texas. Very, very diverse state, but a state where there's unequal power relations. There's 2 million Latinos who are unregistered to vote, 750,000 African-Americans who are unregistered to vote. There's all these allegations of voter suppression right here in the state of Texas. What can we do um, when, we, when we're saying you're saying we're unmoored, how do we get that moral compass back? I don't know that 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 is a great question. And, you know, you talk about the racial hatred and, and, the, and the voter suppression and then just some of the outright comments that politicians are making as the election approaches. You know, I mean, there was a situation in Florida where the the governor said that the, 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 the person running for governor against the, the Republican candidate for governor said, you know, he didn't want to monkey the race up, you know, going against his African-American gubernatorial candidate. President Trump two days ago called the, the black gubernatorial candidate in Florida, said he was a thief, you know. So, I mean, this we haven't seen this since the days of uh, James Eastland in Mississippi, um, you know, Wallace in Alabama. Uh, I mean, we are really going back 50 or 60 years with some with some of the rhetoric. I think it's a very pivotal period for the black protest movement, because if you think, Peniel, from the March on Washington movement in 1944, 
up until the recent present, our protest has always been has always been in many ways structured to get some kind of government interference, you know, to get some kind of government response. But what do we do in 2018 when the government response is not coming? And so I don't know what we do with the black protest movement. I really like uh, what this younger generation of black folks is doing. Black Lives Matter and a lot of people criticize them. But um, I think for, you know, for, for people in our generation, you know, we don't know what to do. You know, we if you can't appeal to somebody's morality and you can't appeal to um, elected officials in the state and across the country, in many ways, it seemed like we may be approaching the nadir. And African-American life, once again, you know, that period after the post-Reconstruction period where Rayford Logan said it was the lowest point of African-American life. So in some uh, some uh, ways, you're talking about hearts and minds and institutions and who do we appeal to. But in our contemporary context, institutions, we think about the Department of Justice led by Jeff Sessions. Exactly. We think about uh, a Congress that um, really doesn't speak to the needs of racial and economic justice. We think about a president that really has otherized successfully blacks, Latinos, Jews, immigrants, Muslims, uh, people who are non-able-bodied, LGBTQT. Um, we're really we're really left with nowhere else to turn but to really organize, to try to demonstrate, to try to gain political power, but also to try to spread consciousness. Because I think one of the things that the Black Lives Matter movement has done is try to spread this consciousness about racial justice. It's made an argument that mass incarceration is a gateway to criminal, uh, to, to, to racial oppression and class oppression and gender oppression. But right now, when we think about this coming election, um, do democratic institutions work in the context of voter suppression, racism, and violence? And like you mentioned, the nadir, the post-Reconstruction era of redemption and white violence and white racial terror against African Americans and others, it seems like we're we're echoing that right now. That, that That's where it seems like we're at. And, and I tell people that the voter suppression is not a joke. And I'll give you one example. I live in Williamson County. Um, when Trump went against Clinton two years ago, my wife voted early. And I woke up one morning and I, she said, where you going? I said, I'm going to go vote early. She said, you got to check the website because the early voting location changes every single day. And I'm like, this is nonsense. You know, but literally, you know, the, the early voting, it was available, but you, you really had to, you know, be strategic, you know, because it moved every single day. And I think what we see what's going on in Georgia with that gubernatorial election, you know, you have the secretary of state who's in charge of the election running as the Republican candidate versus an African-American woman for governor of Georgia. Right. And he is supervising the elections. And I think as we talk now, there are allegations that 50 to 60,000 African-American uh, voters have been removed from the front, front perch. And so the voter suppression is real. But let me say this, Peniel, we talk about the nadir. Although it was the lowest point, that 25 to 30 year period was the year we did a ton of institution building in the black community. Our fraternities and sororities, several of our large black African-American church denominations were created. Um, a ton of HBCUs were created in that period. And you also begin to see these black business districts come to life in the, in the nadir as well. So it may be an opportunity for us to turn inward. And But some young people believe, Peniel, that voting has been overutilized as a tool of liberation. And that's why many young people say they don't vote. And that may sound sacrilegious to some of us, but in their lifetime, they haven't seen um, 
African-American political power, they haven't seen that in, in, in many ways leveraged to lead to black liberation. And when you think about voting exactly in terms of what you're saying, young people in Ferguson um, booed Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton in 2014, 2015. And I think the reason they booed them and the reason why young people in Ferguson don't vote, Ferguson, Missouri, where Michael Brown was murdered and, and uprisings occurred in 2014 and 2015, the reason why those young black people are booing civil rights heroes is because that they, my argument is that they don't, they don't feel like they're citizens. And when we think about voting, voting is an extension of citizenship rights, but it's not the end all be all of being a citizen. So being a citizen and Dr. King um, argued for this when he was organizing the Poor People's Campaign in 1967, 1968. Dr. King said citizenship rights means a living wage. It meant health care. It meant a good environment. It meant food justice and food security. Dr. King said it meant a public school integration and residential integration. And he said it also meant voting rights and civil rights, but he, he said economic justice was part of citizenship. So when we think about young black people, and we're not talking about necessarily young black people from Harvard, Yale, right. Morehouse, mm -hmm. yeah. Spelman. <laughs> we're talking about the grassroots, mm -hmm. uh, the black quotidian, that mm -hmm. big word we use, yeah. the quotidian of <laughs> organic everyday people. A lot of them are not voting because one, they don't have access, but they don't see the utility. And it really is a, a, a political and moral shame that as a society, we have millions of people who don't see the utility in voting. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, we, we are to blame for that. I think what they would say is that the black middle class, that we get caught up on symbolic victories. And I'll give you an example. In New Orleans, um, you know, the mayor was very courageous. Previous mayor is very courageous in bringing out those, those Confederate statues. Mitch Landrieu. Landrieu. But if you talk to poor black folk in New Orleans, what they will tell you is that the statues are down, but I still don't have a job. You know, if I get a job, it's on the other side of town where the public transportation won't take me. I still don't have access to health care. You know, um, there are food deserts in inner city New Orleans. And so I think, you know, so the I think the challenge for those of us, man, who want to be social activists, how do we on some level, Peniel, put our ideology to the side and how do we act in the best interests of the black poor? Now, now that's challenging, you know, but I, I, I'm aware of the privilege that I have. Absolutely. Got a house, I got a little money in the bank, got a retirement, my kids, you know, access to healthcare. But I think too often, man, we don't th put things in terms of what the working poor needs. That's why when you had the disturbance in Baltimore and in Ferguson over police brutality, those activists were speaking to an issue that they confronted on a daily basis. And I'm going to I'm going to extend what you're saying, because I think you're talking about citizenship. I'm working on a book on Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. now. And I talk about Malcolm talking about the struggle for black dignity and King talking about the struggle for radical black citizenship and the convergence between those two. And when we think about Malcolm, Malcolm confronted police brutality. Absolutely. He he confronted economic immiseration and in a and a disrespect and dehumanization of black bodies. Right. Way before James Baldwin, it's Malcolm doing that, right? Um, and King talked about citizenship and citizenship being more than just being able to ride on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama, citizenship encompassing access to 
a whole plethora of institutions and a quality of life that African-Americans weren't used to. Maybe aspects of the black middle class were, but most black people weren't used to. And I think that's what we have to organize around now, because I think voting rights are connected to mass incarceration. They're connected to public school education. They're connected to residential segregation. They're connected to unemployment and the fact that even in this booming economy, African-American unemployment is is twice as high as white unemployment and black youth unemployment is a national catastrophe. And Pernell, we are living in a city where, according to the mayor, the fastest growing economy of any metro nation, metro metropolitan city in the country, and also one of the fastest growing cities of any uh, metropolitan area in the country. I remember I was on a plane, Peniel, and I heard a venture capitalist. I was overhearing. He said that there is money growing on trees in Austin, Texas. But if you think about that, with all this wealth being generated in Austin, we are in a city with a declining African-American population. And if, depending on what happened next week, we could have an entire city council, Austin City Council, with not a single African-American representative. And so the question is, I wonder, is the black community in Austin a microcosm of what you were talking about, where nationally the economy is booming, but to black folks, you know, we aren't reaping that prosperity. And I wonder if that's happening right here in Austin, Texas as well. Yeah, I think absolutely it is. There's hyper-segregation here, racial and economic segregation in Austin. Um, This goes back to the city plan of the late 1920s that forced black folks onto the east side just to get plumbing, just to get access. Um, Places like Clarksville, Wheatsville went from 15% African-American to less than 1%. Um, UT Austin uh, was not desegregated until 1950, and we're, we're still facing the implications and more than just the legacy of that, the evolution of, of racial segregation. So I think, no, you're, 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 you're absolutely right. I think the city of Austin is a case study for unequal power relations and the convergence between race and democracy in both positive, but also very negative ways, um, especially for, for, for African-Americans. I want to go back to the election. What can we what can we expect in terms of this is a midterm election 2018 there's going to be a presidential election in 2020 um in a lot of ways in the aftermath of the 2016 election aspects of the black community were blamed for for the current president being elected (laughs) people said well black women uh they went their points went down seven percentage points black men um both Went, their voting totals went down, but a robust number, maybe 12 percent, voted for the current president. Um, in that context, black people were blamed for not supporting Hillary Clinton. And at the same time, the Democratic Party was blamed for not supporting the working class, which was defined as white males mm, yeah. from West Virginia who right. were coal miners. And Pennsylvania. Right. And, and Pennsylvania right. and, and other right. places. So what what what's going to happen? Because black folks tend to be blamed. Right. Um, uh, when the bad things happen I'll in say the United this. States. By and large, just anecdotally, you can't motivate me to go vote because I don't like somebody. You have to give me a candidate that, that I like and I believe in. And I'll say this about Trump. And of course, I don't agree with hardly any of his policies. But he said something when he got elected in 2016 that I wish a lot of other politician, politicians would pick up on. He said, if you don't like me, vote me out four years later. And what I see, Peniel, and I know I'm treading on thin water, when you look at the Congressional Black Caucus, Mm -hmm. we have some people who've been in office more than 30 years. Mm -hmm. And I really believe when you look across the national spectrum, 
with the one exception, I would argue, of Atlanta, where they have you have had some younger African-American mayors. Keisha Bottoms is mayor now. Um, we have missed out, I believe, Peniel, on two generations of black leadership. Mm-hmm. I like John Lewis, but it's 2018 and he's still talking about Selma. You know what I mean? Um, and some of these folks have been in office 10, 12, 13, 14 terms. And so how do we get a new generation of young African-Americans in the political process? Because I think that's what it's going to take for this young generation to go vote. They need to see people who look like them, people who think like them, as opposed to them going to vote for somebody who looks like their grandfather or their grandmother. And a case in point is the support for everybody from Alexandria Ocasio in, in, in New York right. to Ayanna Presley mm-hmm. in Boston, Stacey Abrams. Georgia. Candidate yeah. for governor of Georgia, Andrew Gillum. Um, right. um, so there's excitement. You know, I mean, I think Gillum, his whole his whole platform and strategy was birthed out of his time at Florida A&M. You know, so if you got you got that base, 10,000 students there, a significant alumni base. And that's what it's going to take, Peniel. Young people, we aren't just going to go vote because we don't like Trump. It has to be got to give me a reason to get out of bed and go vote. And one thing we have to admit that the eight years of President Obama, we didn't necessarily see a strong black agenda advocated for a number of different reasons. Right. So on one level, Obama was being attacked by white supremacists, by racists, by the Tea Partiers, by the birthers. But on another level, um, as people like Michael Eric Dyson and other people have pointed out, Obama at times... um, uh, stereotyped young black men. He talked to Morehouse graduates and told them right. about being deadbeat dads and Morehouse yeah. men know nothing about being deadbeat uh-huh. dads. So there wasn't necessarily a black agenda. Obama thought that by passing health care and other universal programs that a rising tide would lift all ships. Mm-hmm. But when, when black people have been um, um, exploited and placed in ghettos, yeah. uh, you need targeted programs. Absolutely. Like the only way you're going to help out poor black people on the east side of Austin is not giving everybody in the city of Austin a thousand dollar check. <laughs> That's right. You, That's they're, right. They're, they're in such a deep economic hole right. that you would have to have something targeted to get them a level playing field. And I, you know, and I forgot the, the author, but the brother Columbia wrote a book called The Price of the Ticket. You know, yeah, Frederick typic- Harris. Yeah, so, so typically you get an African-American in a position and all kind of black protest stops. We're like, you know, no, we can't protest. You know, give the brother some time, good assistance some time, you know, what she's dealing with. And what happens, you know, we don't get our issues met. And when that person leaves office, there is no legacy of African-American protests because it's been put on hold for four, six to eight years. And I think that's what we saw with the Obama administration. Except for the Black Lives Matter movement. Absolutely. Those young people from the yes. grassroots, and that was because of the murder of Trayvon Martin, um, the murder of uh, you know Sandra Bland, all these different people who were killed under law enforcement or from domestic racial terrorists um, really sparked the Black Lives Matter movement. And we've seen a lot of social movements. We've seen Me Too, uh, March for Our Lives. We've, we've seen DACA and the immigration rights protesters. Um, we've seen the Women's March. So what can, we, what can we expect? I mean, this ferment of social movements, how can they actually impact both the political process, but also all these institutions? That's a good question. But what concerns me about all the social movements is that there seems to be a that we all seem to be under this same umbrella. You know, we don't like Trump. So let's come together. But what worries me is we are resistance. Right. We are not (laughs) dealing with the intersectionality. Yeah. And I'll give you an example. There was uh, some 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 women on campus had a uh, uh, 
uh, a, a rally for sexual assault survivors. And on the flyers they were handing out about, you know, being a sexual assault survivor, they had the black power fist behind it. And some African-American women came to the protest and they were upset. They said, you didn't invite us to the protest. You didn't invite, you didn't care to ask ask us about our experiences, but now you're appropriating the black power symbol for, you know, for this survivor's event. So the intersectionality piece I'm worried about because I believe that when Trump is no longer the source of the anger, then I think you will start to see some of these fissures in in these movements where people begin to say, well, you're not really speaking to my issue. Hope that makes sense. Yeah, I I think it does make a lot of sense. Yeah. I think we're we're wrapping up and I want to I want to ask you a final question. Sure. Okay. Now, it's 2018. This is the 50th anniversary of 1968, the year that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy were assassinated. It's also the year Richard Nixon was elected. Uh, some people think that democracy, racial justice, economic justice, social justice progresses in a linear way. As historians, we know that's not true. Where are we going to be at um, 50 years from now? When we think about 2018 as a pivot point, just like 1968 was a pivot point, in terms of racial justice, American democracy, the intersection between race and democracy, where do you think we're going to be at? Penil, I don't know. I think many people in America are suffering from racial battle fatigue. When I hear well-meaning white folks talk about Leonard, you know, how much longer should should affirmative action go on? Well, Leonard, I think <laughs> if if people would just comply with the police, they wouldn't get shot. And I believe these are well-meaning folks, but I don't know what the catalyst for this is. But I think you know this, you know this, uh, you know this experiment post-civil rights has been going on about forty-five to fifty years. Um, I think I, what I would like to see, I would like to see maybe social movements formed around class. And I've always been amazed, you know, coming from a blue collar uh, city, I've always been amazed why the black steel worker didn't hook up with the white steel worker at the Ford plant. You know, why why does the white steel worker identify with the CEO (laughs) and the board of directors? And I think the one thing we haven't tried in this country in terms of bringing about economic justice um, has been a sort of a working class, a working class movement. But what we see with Donald Trump, I mean, he is running a brilliant campaign. Don't agree with it. Just if you just if you just look at it abstractly, you know, he is speaking to his base. His base is responding. And like he said, when he got elected president, he said, well, quote, I could shoot somebody in Times Square and people would still support me. So I, I really, it'll be really interesting to see what happens, man, over the next five decades. Well, I, I think that's a somber, sobering note. Um, I think it's been great having this conversation with you, and I want you to come back. Um, thank you for being our inaugural guest uh, on Race and Democracy. And, um, you know, just thank you for your time. Brother, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode, and you can check out related content on Twitter, at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.